Mr. Alper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. We are at the point, uh, listener, we are at the point in the Major League Baseball season. Uh, now, at, uh, about two-thirds of the way through April, we are at the point now uh, where for pitchers, uh, for pitchers, uh, it is nearly the case that their uh, strikeout rates, uh, that is strikeouts uh, per, per batter faced, uh, that their strikeout rates uh, have become reliable. We might say that we might look at their rates uh, for some of the starters who pitch more innings and say that uh, their strikeout rates are near uh, nearly reliable uh, so far as that's concerned. And for batters, uh, we're actually at this point, uh, we're past the point, uh, uh, certainly for, for the batters who've accrued the most plate appearances, we're past the point at which we can say uh, their swing rates have become reliable. Uh, and we're nearing the point, uh, again, for those batters who've, who've compiled the most plate appearances, we're nearing the point uh, where their contact rates might become reliable. How uh, how do I know this? Uh, it is not due to any research at all that I've done myself. Uh, however, it is due to a study uh, that goes back to 2008 um, conducted by Russell Carlton, um, who then uh, was working under the pseudonym Pizza Cutter in a series of posts at Statistically Speaking, uh, a site that is now uh, not a part of the Internet, uh, but was uh, but was then, of course. Uh, Russell Carlton, uh, in a pair of posts, submitted for the public's consideration uh, using split-half reliability techniques. He submitted the the uh, thresholds, the plate appearance and batter's face thresholds at which certain statistics be, uh, become reliable. That research has been uh, very important to a lot of sabermetric endeavors uh, since that point. It has allowed writers like myself uh, to, instead of simply citing small sample size, for every sort of early season metric, it's given writers like myself a real opportunity to understand to what degree uh, a player is approaching or or is not approaching reliability in terms of this or that metric. Russell Carlton is the guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. In addition, in addition to being a trained statistician, Carlton also received a PhD in psychology. So, uh, using those two. Um, those two skill sets, as it were, and, and it, uh, this is not to say that they don't overlap at some points, but uh, but they also are are different in and of themselves. Carlton's training in those uh, two disciplines informs the majority of uh, of the conversation, which which is to follow. We start off uh, setting a conversation I personally had with Dave Cameron on a recent edition of the podcast. A conversation with regard to John Axford. Axford, of course, has had some problems early on the season. However, except for allowing more home runs than usual, he does not appear to be doing anything else much differently. And yet the ethic within baseball more or less dictates that um, it's incumbent upon Axford to admit that he's the one who's failing, even though, from what we know about statistics and statistical reliability, the samples at which certain stats become reliable, it's entirely within the realm of possibility that Axford's doing exactly what he's done previous two, three seasons, etc. That conversation with Cameron is the one out of which... uh, the conversation to follow with Russell Carlton grows. It was a good deal of fun uh, t- uh, talking with Carlton. He's a man with a uh, considerable, uh, considerable amount of training uh, and also one who, who knows his limits, uh, which is a uh, probably an important sort of person uh, to have around, not just in terms of baseball analytics, uh, probably in your life. That's a good sort of person. Um, how about uh, how about this? How about I stop talking? And how about we get to the conversation? And it is, in fact, a conversation with Russell Carlton. Uh, it's on Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Uh, 
I do know I'm being okay. recorded. Good. I'm counting on it. Okay, good. Um, yeah, that's part. That's how we. That's how we make podcast magic, Russell Carlton. Um, so I do want to tell you a couple things. One, I'm going to ask you some questions. None of them are particularly, uh, or they're not designed to be prying. However, if any time you don't want to answer them, uh, you should tell me that uh, you're not going to answer them. That's a that's a legitimate response. Do we have like a safe word that we need to have? <laughs> no, you can just say yeah, um, <clears throat> guests. Uh, uh, on average, guests are very comfortable telling me uh, to, to shove it, and uh, you, should, <laughs> you should work with that same level of comfort. I invite you to. Well, okay. Yeah. Now, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, right now, you is it possible that you're sitting in your car in your own garage? Actually, no. Um, I'm, I'm in my kitchen, and the only reason I was able to do that is that um, my wife is over uh, at my mother-in-law's, and um, so I, I, I'm able to stand in the kitchen and uh, and get cell phone reception and some quiet. That's great! Wow, that's a lot of freedom you're being granted tonight. I know, but it also means that if one of my uh, one of my girls wakes up, I gotta go. No, that's fine. Yeah, that's absolutely. You now you are you appear to be some sort of father. Is that a fact? I am. I've got uh, two little ones and one on the way. So look at that. You will. Yeah. Wow. That is uh, those yeah. responsibilities. There are other humans. Literally, there are other humans. Depending on you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Every that is, single day. Yeah, that's actually. And they never leave. Yeah. Hey, credit to you. You've already, um, uh, you're already uh, a top flight gentleman in my eyes just mm. because of that. Um, listen, I w- well, I want to start, start off by saying, first of all, it's uh, it's nice to be able to talk to you for the first time. Mm. I've, I'm realizing, um, well, there are a number of reasons why, <clears throat> uh, why I've arranged for this to be the case, but. Um, um, most directly, it's because uh, let's see. Last, I guess last, yeah, last Monday, um, Cameron and I were having a conversation about. Uh, did Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, uh, we were having mm-hmm. a conversation about. I guess we were having a conversation about. Re, uh, in this particular case, it was about John Axford and mm-hmm. uh, Jess Sullivan, of course, uh, uh, who, who writes for Fangraphs, had done some work Fangraphs, and, said, yeah. and said, from what I can tell. This was his conclusion. From what we from what we can tell, from the numbers that are available to us, from the data that's available to us, that it does not appear as though anything is really going much differently for John Axford, except mm-hmm. for the fact that he's allowed like like three or four home runs and has had some tough breaks in terms of blown saves. But basically everything mm-hmm. else, uh, I think the velocity was pretty similar. His his mm-hmm. swinging strike rates early on were very similar to his career numbers. A lot of this was normal, but Cameron mm-hmm. made the point that if you were to ask uh, John Axford, you know, do you feel as though uh, do you feel as though it's just bad luck? There would be mm-hmm. some reason to believe that he would say, no, my job is to close out games, or or is to, you know, in high leverage situations, is to n- neutralize the opponent. I haven't done that, therefore I failed. Mm-hmm. And and so this brought up this sort of idea of. Um, the, the, this sort of this this gap, I guess, um, between what 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 we as analysts can say about a certain player, but then additionally what that player can say about himself, knowing that uh, his teammates, his coaches, and his and the fans of that uh, that team might know. And then Cameron said, "Well, I, um, you know, I asked him a question to that effect, and he said, well, I can't answer that question. That's a question for Russell Carlton.' So my <laughs> so so let's get to that. Why is that a question for Russell Carlton?" 
Because <laughs> uh, Cameron doesn't have a degree in psychology, I guess. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember listening to that as the question was unfolding and being like, "Oh, wait! Oh, oh I know this one! I know this one!" Yeah, I totally get that when you when you mentioned me. Um, like, oh, they know who I am. And um, actually, the thing with that one is that acts were probably caught between you know a couple of things. One is that you know there's a very male thing that you know I have to take charge of this. This is my this is my job. This is my duty. You know, and that's. Um, it's something that's kind of uh, kind of baked into the fabric of sports culture in America. And if something goes wrong, that you know we have a we have somebody that we assign the blame to. And um, you know it's it's and I and it comes from a good place. I mean, he doesn't want to let his team down. He doesn't want to um, he doesn't he, you know he wants the Spurs to win. Um, and he was the guy who was on the mound when you know the big home run went out uh, went out of the park. And so, you know, there's, there's that aspect of it. But, you know, there's another thing that, that when you guys were talking, I'm like, well, one of the things that happens is that when something goes wrong, people have a tendency to blame chance, and, uh, except when something goes wrong for somebody else, in which case it's just their own fault. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of that, that, that uh, you know, should I blame random chance or, or uh, you know, should I man up and take it? And you know, in, in that case, there's a, there's a certain amount of you know we've got a small sample size. He's only given up, um, you know, maybe um, what did you say, three or four home runs at this point. And there's a point where um, you kind of have to you say, well, you know, maybe it's just a small sample size sort of thing that um, got away from him. And I found it fascinating when you guys were talking about it. And uh, and, and then I believe the lightning hit and the uh, the recording equipment went out and I'm like, oh, you guys didn't finish that qu- uh, that conversation and well, yeah, so, to reconnect. So let's uh, so so let's get uh, what we can do um, in this conversation is maybe get to the yeah. end of the conversation. Before we do, mm-hmm. I just want to mm-hmm. um, you sort of uh, you mentioned it, but a lot of listeners might not know uh, what yeah. you, what your sort of background is uh, academically. Yeah, yeah, I um, I I used to be a therapist. <laughs> which is hilarious because I still make therapist jokes. Um, I, I, yeah, I, uh, I went to undergrad and, and got a, uh, a BA in psychology and um, had uh, had this great idea that I was going to become a child therapist because I've always uh, worked with kids. And so I went to DePaul University in Chicago and lived half a mile from Wrigley Field, and that was really cool. And got me a, a PhD in psychology. And through the course of about six years in grad school, the thing that I found out that I uh, about myself was that there is no way in hell I want to spend the next 40 years of my life being a therapist. So, um, so that's where that came from. Um, but I always had a, a stats background and uh, uh, started dabbling in, in baseball stuff, and then also. Um, Parlayed that into uh, I had quite a bit of stats training. I actually parlayed it into a real job too. So now you said that um, um, that, that you you were in training to be uh, to be a therapist, mm-hmm. uh, but that you also got your PhD. I, I would assume, at least from my experience, that there are a number of people who are therapists um, uh, with ju- and I don't mean to say just 
master's degrees, but there is... There is <laughs> Never uh, ever say just a master's degree yeah, right. to somebody with a master's degree. Right. Well, I, I'm a person with just a master's degree. Uh, and I know, oh, that for well. example, I know that, for example, my wife, though, is on a PhD route, and I do know that there is a pretty strong, a pretty serious gap between those. Um, there's a lot of pain and frustration and, uh, pain. Yeah. and curling up pain. into uh, the field position that's involved mm-hmm. in that. Um, but I would also assume that, that one would not necessarily need a PhD to become a therapist. And so what was, was not becoming a therapist something – was that a decision you made along the way, um, and then you went yeah. for more of a research angle? Yeah, I, and it, it was actually the last thing you do in a uh, PhD program is you do a year-long internship. And I did uh, uh, I did my internship in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm from. And I uh, spent a year every day going in, you know, nine o'clock, uh, seeing a client, and and going all the way through till five, six, seven o'clock, whenever it was that I finished my notes. And that was actually that that year was the first time I had ever done kind of the you know, five days a week, eight hours a day sort of thing, and it was awful. And it was just one of those things that as the the year went on, I said, you know, this this is not for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, you know, so I uh, had to come up with plan B. Right, yeah. Well, you know, it is uh, – and uh, it, I think that this is going to dovetail eventually with the John, uh, John Axper conversation. But is, mm-hmm. is, is, is the reason that it can be – that it can be daunting, is it just – um, now, I have an uncle, for example, uh, who's a social worker, and um, he, he enjoys his work, but he also admits that, uh, especially meeting with uh, a number of people you know, who are experiencing mm-hmm. difficulties, can also be wearing at the same time. Is, was that generally sure, yeah. your experience with that? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it's a wonderful, noble profession, and I, I admire greatly the people who, um, who can do that for, uh, for 40 years, and I, you know, it was... I've just kind of come to the piece that it was a good uh, it was a good profession. It's just not the profession for me, and it's you know there's a certain amount of if you have eight clients that you see during the day, and for about six of them they're kind of running in place, and one of them goes backward, and then you have to find that one that uh, um, that goes uh, that, that's making progress, and. Uh, you know, that's uh, it's just something that I wasn't able to handle. What do we What do we know actually with regard to therapy? And this actually, I think this relates to to our mutual interest, which is, uh, I mean, not necessarily the baseball part of it, but but statistics and 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 at what point they become reliable, um, which is that's like that's your uh, bailiwick, uh, if you will. Um, and, but what do we know about uh, in terms of therapy? But you you said like you might have. You know, six clients who are neutral, one who who, who sort of uh, falls back a little bit, one who makes progress. Um, just in terms of human behavior, what what is the sort of what are the benefits of therapy, and when do they help? When don't they help? How much do they help? Well, one thing we do know is that you know, 50% of people who uh, have mild problems just kind of get better on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's I, I want to make sure that I, I stress that word mild. You know, if there are people out there who who really sincerely need a lot of help, well, you know, there's help out there. Um, as far as effectiveness, you know, the thing is that it will depend on, um, there's a lot of research around styles of therapy, different techniques for different uh, different problems and different symptoms. And, you know, what happens is that uh, um, if you have somebody who's doing good evidence-based uh, therapy, you know, we, depending on what's going on, you might uh, you see about, well, I guess, what, 70 or 80% of people um, 
show some really significant improvement over uh, over time. Um, the the problem is that uh, you know as a as a researcher as a statistician I can look at you know an eight I go eight percent wow that's awesome and you know eighty percent of people are getting better but when you're the therapist and you have that one in five who's sitting in front of you who's not getting better you're basically banging your head going oh what do I do I'm doing everything right and it's not working and you know and, and that's that's a real person and that's you know, that's one of those uh, those things that I think a lot of uh, a lot of people in that profession struggle with. That's actually it's it's interesting you notable uh, that you that you note that and and um, I, I, this might be a case for for metatherapy of sorts. Uh, mm-hmm. But I know that for example, I worked as a as a teacher for five six years as a professor mm-hmm. of uh, writing. So working mm-hmm. with college age students, or mm-hmm. in, in many cases because I taught for three years at a community college, um, mm-hmm. older than college age students. Um, mm-hmm. And I do notice, and I don't know if, if it has to do with a personality type for myself or if this is uh, uh, pretty common among all teachers. There is a tendency, though, to notice as a teacher the the, the percentage of students, the, the, those students who are not necessarily getting the material, or or mm-hmm. th- they could be they could be um, dedicating themselves to it, but 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 mm-hmm. having a difficult time. There's a tendency. For myself, and I thought my wife has dealt with a similar thing, which is mm-hmm. to say, which is to, almost to to base my understanding of myself or, or to my my esteem of myself as a teacher on the the number of students who aren't getting it, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. opposed to the ones who are. And 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 I wonder, like you said, it, that this is something that can happen as a therapist. I assume that mm-hmm. if you're working as a therapist, you you are you know. There's a dialogue between you and maybe some of your colleagues or instructors where you say, mm-hmm. um, "I have one or two patients who are not getting it." But also, there must be some some sort of awareness, right, to say, "I don't want to base my entire esteem, my, my my regard for myself as a therapist, on the one or two who aren't getting it, as opposed to the eighty percent who are succeeding." Mm-hmm. Well, that's hard. I mean, I taught too, and I I've, I felt that same uh, that same pressure and. Um, both in the classroom and then, like you say, in the therapy room. And, you know, kind of looping back around to John Axford, you know, it's hard not to um, – you pour a lot of yourself into whatever your craft is, whatever your profession is, and it's always um, – is uh, I'll clean this one up, but my dad used to say a uh, thousand attaboys is worth one aw crap. And uh, <laughs> your listeners can, uh, you know, substitute words in there as you so desire. But um, – you know that's uh, uh, it, it's uh, it, it's tempting to, to to focus on the negatives. And actually, one of the things that you know, if you've got somebody who's depressed, one of the things that uh, they often do is they just focus on those negatives all the time. And you have to train them to, um, you know, hey, um, this one didn't go so well, but you know, let's take a look at this in the broader context. And you know, there's certain things that are beyond your control and you have to get away from it's all my fault. It's always going to be this way. Um, you know, everything I everything is going to be wrong, and it's all on me. And you know, be a little bit more realistic about uh, what's really happening. And uh, you know, to bring it back to Axford, you know, maybe he'd benefit from just kind of a, a nice, calm, uh, rational uh, analysis of that. But that's hard to do. You know, well, it's, it's it, easy for to, to say. It's just it's really, really hard to put into practice. 
No, I know that um, – so so I've had in the past, I've had um, encounters with uh, generalized anxiety, and I know that in addition to medication, certainly one of the important uh, parts of treatment for anxiety is is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the CBT, CBT, right. And that, mm-hmm. it, it, that essentially CBT is designed um, to, to help a patient um, do precisely what you're suggesting, which is to say uh-huh. – it's essentially to retrain yourself and your brain and your your first reaction mm-hmm. um, to help you recognize that you in it's a good and a bad thing it's you know depending on your mind frame you don't have control over everything uh, that you should be concerned about those things over which you do have control and it's mm-hmm. interesting that this is so I would actually say that anyone who's uh, suffering from uh, anxiety or depression, Mm-hmm. I, and I know for me personally, learning about mm-hmm. learning about baseball stats. I mean, baseball baseball was excellent in this regard as sort of a reinforcement of that, because you do realize that in a number of different ways, there are things over which batters and over which pitchers do have control and don't have control. And you also learn, and this is this is exclusively because of your work that I know about this, is that there okay. are different sample sizes at which those things yeah. become become reasonable. So, for example, mm-hmm. like um, I think I, I was talking about it with Cameron, but if if you take any player, probably the thing – maybe you can think of, a, of an exception to this. The thing that becomes stable uh, most quickly or in terms of the fewest uh, data points is I would say pitcher velocity. Does that make sense? Well, you know, I was actually – I think I was talking to Ben Lindbergh uh, the other day and about this just uh, in an email, and my uh, – I broke it down as probably the, uh, the the fewer things the ball has to bounce off of, the quicker it stabilizes. Mm-hmm. So if it's uh, if it's the pitcher's velocity, um, yeah, that's probably going to stabilize pretty quick. I haven't actually run that one though. I I, I don't honestly know, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if that uh, that's pretty stable pretty quick. Right, but then but then as you get like you said, like as as it requires. I, I guess as it requires more variables, right? The, the chances that it's going to stabilize, um, or I mean, it will stabilize at some point, but it's it's likely yeah, that the, the more variables, probably the more data points are required for it to stabilize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fair statement. Um, but I will say, like, go back to this point, is that for me, especially you, you, know, you wrote this piece. Can you, can you talk about the development of this piece when you wrote it? I know that the original piece <laughs> is now only available on like the Wayback Machine on the internet, or maybe it's been, uh, I think it's been saved oh, at this point. I know a secret place where they hide it. <laughs> but can you, t- can you talk uh, about the creation? Like um, you, you wrote essentially the, the first big piece on the, the, the sample sizes at which a number mm-hmm. of metrics become reliable. Can you talk about mm-hmm. – how, you know how you decided to write that piece, and, and what skills helped you write that piece. Well, let's see. Uh, this is November of 2007. Um, I'm still in grad school. I'm bored. I don't want to work on my dissertation. Right, because and who? So because I, who does? That's that's been my well, my experience. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And so I, um, uh, what I was doing, I started um, writing at a, a website that doesn't exist anymore called Statistically Speaking. And it was a, uh, um, it was supposed to be, you know, a sabermetrics blog. So I'm like, oh, okay, fine. And so I, st- I had started doing a little bit of research and, you know, coming up with little things and then seeing, you know, is this correlated with this? And I kept coming up against, okay, well, um, 
I don't want to, you know, bring a guy into the sample who's got two plate appearances. And, cause, you know, that, that doesn't tell us anything. He could be one for two. That means he's a 500 hitter, right? You know, that means he's, he's better than Ted Williams. And, you know, no, that's just, you know, that's a small sample size of lucky. Well, then I started saying, well, then what, what is big enough? What, 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 uh, where do we draw that line? And so I started, you know, looking around, looking around, and realized that nobody had really done that before. So, you know, I mentioned I'm a grad student. I've been doing a lot of dissertation research. I've taken research methods classes and stats classes and all that sort of thing. And um, as a psychologist who does stats, I actually um, I made a little small side income just doing consultations to my, my peers because uh, therapists are notoriously scared of stats. Um, but uh, I had all that, uh, that training and all that stuff just kind of ringing in my ears. And I said, okay, so... How do we do this normally in, in psychology? Well, we do a you know a split half reliability. Well, it can't be that tough. So you know, I said okay, here's how. Well, you, wait, 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 okay. Can you explain? Half. Can you explain split half oh, uh, reliability? Split half reliability. <laughs> oh, great! Now I get to be stats professor. Yeah, too. Well, you should please. Um, <laughs> that would help. <laughs> oh, great! I've already I've already taught you intro to intro to therapy, and now we're doing uh. intro to stats. <laughs> the idea is this, and that's let's say you got a hundred plate appearances uh, for a, uh, an individual batter. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to go even and odd. I'm going to go uh, plate appearance number one, number three, number five, and then you know two, four, and six, and so on. And I'm going to split them into uh, into two parts. And what I'm going to do then is I'm going to take a look at whatever stat I'm looking at: it's strikeout rate, or batting average, or you know uh, times adjusting your jack strap, you know whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to uh, see. Well, if if this is something that's uh, that's a stable stat that you know we can we can really put some faith in, um, those two um, uh, those two uh, samples are going to line up really nicely, and you just take a simple correlation of uh, of both of those halves, the evens and the odds, and so I I just did that and ran it, wrote it up, um, and uh, published it on statistically speaking, and. Um, I don't know. I ever since I've been explaining that uh, that study. So, well, I think it's an important one because so I, you know, for me, um, I you know I know that at a certain point all you could ever say was, uh, you know, the beginning of the season, for example, you'd say, well, but it's a small sample size, right? Mm-hmm. But I know that uh, for me, both before I started writing FanGraphs when I was you know uh, a fan, uh, a very mm-hmm. interested fan. Um, and then after I started writing FanGraphs, and actually, uh, not not that um, either the um, you know Dave Cameron uh, or any of the the readers really depend on me to provide very deep analysis. It's still nice to have the concepts back there. Um, mm-hmm. it, it your your study when I came across it was so helpful because before that there was just SSS and that was it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that the thing that that study helped was. Um, was was it gave a framework by which to look at a player and say, well, we can start making, you know, to say 50, you know, it's like 50 plate appearances in. Well, mm-hmm. you know, we can maybe start uh, making making some conclusions or drawing some conclusions about his swing rate, right? Mm-hmm. That's the thing at this yeah. point that, you know, that in. But but if a guy is showing, uh, you know, if his, if his BABIP is high, we could say, well, that doesn't even—that's not even something that becomes reliable uh, within a within a year's worth of data. So, you know, uh, 
what it was like, you know, uh, you know, the first couple of years, or when Josh Hamilton had a cr- crazy year a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. he had a he had a BABIP approaching 400 or something. You say, well, right, this could be a, this this the explanation could be that um, Josh Hamilton is seeing the ball very well. That's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, you could say, well. Uh, this is also something that just does not become reliable in a short amount of time. So this is something that could happen. It's totally within the realm of, uh, of possibility. Now, could you explain – now, you, you talk about – you give sort of thresholds, pl- plate appearance thresholds mm-hmm. for when certain metrics become reliable. Could you talk about yeah. what, what that word means in this in this statistical context, the word reliable? Yeah, because there's this wonderful uh, this wonderful thing that happens when people talk about this, and it, this is the time of year when I start hearing, oh, well, you know, there was a study – and it's uh, it's great to hear my name over and over again, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, or at least my old uh, alias. But um, the uh, um, the thing about a threshold is that it's a point that's just kind of a line in the sand. And you know, I set the um, the, the bar for the stat is reliable at a core a split half uh, reliability correlation of 0.7. And the reason for that is that it's kind of an industry standard uh, in psychology. And the real reason for that is that if you take an R squared, uh, 7.7 times 0.7 is 0.49. So, you know, a little bit north of that is you're accounting for half of the variance. And so that's your that's kind of why it, it, it went there. Um, but uh, it's interesting because I hear a lot of, oh, well, you know, we finally crossed over that threshold. And now, you know, he's had 100 play appearances or he's had 75 or whatever he's had. And, uh, and, and so, you know, now that stat's reliable. And, you know, it is a gradual process. Is that It's a, a matter of the stat gets more reliable as things go along. And uh, at, at the, uh, the threshold that I, I posted, that's just where it crossed that uh, somewhat arbitrary, but, uh, you know, with some sort of argument uh, uh, to, to it, uh, that .70 line. Right. So, yeah, obviously, as uh, if you ha- if you could, um, ideally, you'd have an infinitely large sample. Um, Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be the best. But like but, baseball all day, every day, just yeah. kind of constantly. Right. Yeah. But then that would just be a lot of people falling over eventually, and uh, there would be no pitchers left. Uh, ultimately, it would not be great. It would be uh, it would it would be like uh, it, it would be it would be bad baseball eventually. Uh, but yeah, but eventually they'd let us play. Yeah, and that no one wants that. <laughs> but but so so the thresholds though, so so you would say that they are significant insofar as they do represent the point at which is there at which is there approximately there's approximately point seven there's a point seven zero correlation, uh, which mm-hmm. is also um, uh, in R squared of about point five, which to, which is to yeah. say we know about half. Or more of what's happening once we cross this threshold. Well, I do want to be careful there, and that's yeah. Please do. Be, please correct common, me. There's there's a, a common misinterpretation. I wrote an article on this uh, eight nine months ago, um, and I, I I want to caution people to to be very careful how they do that. And the reason is that I originally was asking the question, kind of looking retrospectively at, you know, at, let's just say 2012 data, um, at, what, at what point could I be confident that this guy has a big enough sample that I can look back over uh, his 2012 season and say, 
yeah, that's a good estimate of what he was in 2012. And uh, I did some some additional analyses. And the thing is that, you know, it's kind of an artificial thing to take even even numbered plate appearances versus odd numbered plate appearances. What that does is it kind of controls for, oh, you know, some of the in each bin will be against the same pitcher and against the same team and in the same park and, of course, in the same game. And so you kind of control for those sorts of things artificially. The problem is that in reality, you know, games are played sequentially. So, um, you know, the, the, the hundred plate appearances that somebody will bump up against within the next couple of weeks might be a good approximation of what he was over the la- those hundred plate appearances. But we can't really fully assume that that's going to keep going because it's going to be different pitchers, different, uh, different parks, different circumstances, different, I don't know, maybe he tinkers with his swing a little bit. I don't know. Um, and I actually found when I, I did some, some advanced mathing um, that those kind of situational things actually account for about half of the effect. And so, you know, it's, it, it's nice to, to be able to say, um, you know, we have a, a pretty good idea of what he has been, um, but you have to be careful how much you assume that that's going to keep going um, as, you, as you continue on during the season. Right. So, in actually, uh, Dave Cameron phrases well, at least for um, for me, it, it worked very well. In a recent article, I think it was with regard to war. And, of course, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. There's always been a lot of discussion about war, but cert- certainly more so in the mainstream media recently about um, – They're all and, at war on war. Right, precisely. And, <laughs> and what is it good for, et cetera, um, just the most hilarious puns you could imagine. The point being, oh, yeah. the point being that, uh, and I thought Cameron phrased this well, is that basically every metric we look at, every stat we look at, is an answer to a question. And mm-hmm. I, it sounds like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, it sounds like to mm-hmm. me what you're saying is we have to be careful about the question we think we're answering when we look at mm-hmm. these reliability thresholds. Yeah. Is that is that you have to know that it's not necessarily to say that this guy has this skill after X number of plate appearances because there are also these other caveats that need to be made, which is to say they're taken sequentially. So Mm -hmm. if you played for the first three months of the season against the Astros, we cannot ignore that, that, right? Or or maybe if his his, uh, handmade bone, if he had broken his handmade bone but he was still playing and he Mm -hmm. had 100 more plate appearances after that, that's not going to necessarily – that's going to represent those 100 plate appearances – uh, during which he had a broken handmate, and that's not, and you know maybe at some level that's his quote unquote true skill, but that's that's his true skill with a broken handmate, and that's probably going to be mm-hmm. less than uh, than what he has. So what you, I think, if I, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is, be aware of the the question you're answering when you look at these reliability thresholds. Yeah, I think the the question that people want to answer is, you know, we've now seen that you know player X has uh, has suddenly developed this new skill. He's taking more walks. And how, when do we know that that's, that's really him and we can expect that going forward uh, versus that's just kind of a fluke? And the thing is that the, the study that, uh, that, that I did in 07 um, was actually answering the question, looking backward, how, how certain can we be that that represents what he was? So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a past versus future tense sort of thing. Now, it's not, um, you know, it's not a silly assumption to make that, you know, what he is today um, will be a lot like what he will be tomorrow. 
Um, so you know, there's there's that, but it's a uh, it's an assumption, and that's something that uh, you have to be really careful of uh, when you make assumptions. You know, you know, you know the rest of that. Sure. Now, yes, I do. It makes an ass out of you an umption. I think is the answer. <laughs> um, a Latin teacher uh, told that joke. Um, the ah, es me discipulus latina. Oh, oh yeah, uh, yeah, uh, semper ubi sabubi. I, I mean, if you want to get into it, I could. Did you did you study Latin? <laughs> I did for four years, and really the only thing that came in handy for it was when they elected a new pope. I'm like, oh, I know what they're saying. Yeah, I yeah. Well, let's see. I studied probably for uh, for eight years. And oh, wow. I, w- I probably would not necessarily understand a pope, but I can read Marshall okay. So that's all I really need. Okay, he's, he's my go-to guy. Um, okay. uh, so so let's go let's go back to Axford. Uh, we we've sort of mm-hmm. gone gone back and forth with him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you ran those, uh, when you ran your reliability tests um, mm-hmm. uh, five years ago, I think you mm-hmm. found that you, even within a season, a pitcher's uh, Home run per per batter faced uh, uh, rate does not become reliable. Does that, does that sound does that sound about right? Uh, you know, I don't have the, the figures in front of me, but the one that really gets uh, uh, that's really hard to find reliability on is home runs per fly ball. Right. And well, because fly yeah. balls are that, those days around a little bit too. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, that, that, what that. you can I mean, there's there's a certain moderating effect of if if you have a ground ball pitcher, he's not going to give up a lot of home runs per plate appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, but once the ball is in the air. Uh, there's not a lot of reliability um, in terms of uh, of the ball flying out over the fence, or you know, just uh, hopefully flying into the right fielder's glove. Right, but so I think the the point is, I think um, when you have a situation where with Axford, right, where mm-hmm. we we know generally speaking that at a, that uh, home runs per plate appearance or per batter face probably becomes reliable at a certain threshold. It probably requires a lot of batters faced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe upwards, because I think for most of your tests, you, you stopped at around 600 or 750 plate appearances. Yeah, because that's, that's what I had, and that's what was available at that uh, that particular moment. Yeah. Sure, and that's totally reasonable. And and that that's, uh, that, that's more than... Um, that's more than we need for this conversation, which is about you know two weeks out of John Axford's life. Right. Um, it's if you if but the, so there are a couple things could be happening, right? It could really be that uh, John Axford is throwing pitches that are more susceptible to home runs. That's a thing that could be happening. Could be. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, this is to this is to, to bring it back also to your psychological training is. If we bring back the information to him, you, you now you mentioned something that that I thought was interesting. You, you sort of talked about like uh, um, uh, masculinity and in, in sort of constructions mm-hmm. of masculinity that exist in in baseball, where there mm-hmm. is certainly an ethic that says, uh, you know, which suggests that every player ought to at least publicly um, account for uh, those in this case account for his mistakes essentially. Mm-hmm. It's actually sort of it's it's a weird relationship because anytime a player does something well, he always seems to deflect it and say, "I'm just trying to do my best for the team." You know, these guys were they were very helpful. A pitcher will say, "Oh, the guy had a great defense behind me. That was what was so helpful." But when a guy does something poorly, it seems as though um, the, the sort of dominant ethic suggests that he ought to take on full responsibility. I, would would you mind just commenting briefly, like on like what we know first of all about the role of chance, especially in something like home runs allowed, but then beyond that, mm-hmm. this sort of uh, 
this sort of balance thing where if a player does something poorly, he takes responsibility, but if he does something well, he deflects it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, think about and and both from um, both from Axford and and even you know the the fans, you know, it, it's uh, it's hard to it's hard to hear that uh, you know there's a lot of chance involved in in baseball or anything for that matter, um, because well, wait a minute, what, you know, there's a um, I briefly mentioned the positive attribution bias that when something good happens, you want to be able to say, well, that's 100% of my control, of course, you know, I'm just that awesome. And, you know, there's, there's, and I am that awesome. You know? Yeah, no, I, I got um, it, I got it. I, the phone, <laughs> I get it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, except for when I flub it and it's all your fault, Carson, so. Yeah. Um, but uh, there, there's, um, there's, there's that, you know, societal, um, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't put yourself out there. You know, it's not it's not nice to walk around telling people how awesome you are, and especially and if I may if I may interject, especially in the Midwest, yeah. definitely don't do it in the Midwest. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm a Midwestern boy myself. Yeah, yeah. It's especially found upon in the Midwest. I don't know if it's a, a Lutheran value or if it's like a Scandinavian or German value, but it definitely appears to be more so the case. Uh, in the, I, I live in Madison, Wisconsin now, and I certainly mm-hmm. notice it more than, uh, you know, than living on. Well, the West Coast is it's hard to say anything about. Who knows about those people? But uh, certainly, New England. Uh, it seems like you're allowed to take credit for more of uh, for more of your virtues than in the Midwest. <laughs> I guess so. I, I don't know. I've never lived out there, so and, and now I live in the South, which is co- totally. Uh, well, let's totally talk about that. Thing. We'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, let's yeah, let's, let's get back to Axford. But anyway, but back to I mean back to I mean you think about. There's that, you know, societal, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to puff myself up. And, and I suppose there's some, some amount of that that, that, uh, that Axford's responding to or any pitcher who's kind of gives the cliche post-game interview is doing. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, I think that the, um, uh, you can go too far in that direction, but I think what's more important is when he's kind of alone with his own thoughts and he's not, you know, answering questions from, um, you know, whatever the Milwaukee paper is, uh, 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 I forget what the, the, the journal, there, journal Sentinel, yeah, the journal Sentinel, yeah. whenever the Milwaukee journal Sentinel, uh, reporters are done talking to him, you know, what is, what does he think? You know, does he, um, d- does he sit there and kind of, uh, say, well, you know, there's a certain amount of chance. And I, 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 I I've never met John Axford, so I don't know what he, uh, um, what he thinks about in, in the, in the dead of night when he's, uh, alone with himself. But uh, it, it's going to depend more on how he's he's really uh, apportioning blame or credit or whatever uh, to himself. And you know, if I if I were his therapist, which um, hopefully he's not listening, um, I would I would say something along the lines of, well, you know, again, let's let's think about you know you uh, you you might have made a bad pitch, you might have. Um, uh, you might you might have done some you know and left one hanging and now that happens um, and maybe you know he hit a really good pitch you made the pitch you wanted to and the other guy just you know hit it out sometimes you do everything right and it doesn't work um, but uh, I, I would I, I think it is more important how he internally uh, figures on this thing and you know when I hear post game interviews along those lines I kind of discount it as as far as um, really giving any sort of, uh, of meaning because players are in that situation are in such you know they're in such nondescript protect mode um, and it's uh, it, it can it can often be just kind of a big show so 
I, I would I would love to hear uh, uh, more of uh, uh, I would love to put like a, a little uh, mind melt thing on uh, on uh, John Axford's head and uh, uh, have you know his thoughts broadcast out to, for the rest of people to hear. So. Well, I mean, it, when you uh, invoke the the sort of post game discussion, right? It, it's a question of incentives because, right? Because you have to say, well, what's his incentive to tell the truth about how he actually feels about it, yeah. as opposed to the, the version of the truth that would that will gain him the most favor with probably most um, expediently with fans, but also his teammates and managers, right? There's not really much of an incentive for him to say like, well. Uh, you know, it was just randomness, right? Like, yeah. in, in terms of um, putting... I'm not sure if fans want to hear that. You know, again, it's, there's that cultural expectation of, you know, you man up and you take uh, you take the blame for, for what you did. And, uh, you know, and that's, in in some sense, you know, it's that um, he's he's selling he's selling a story and, and he's, uh, um, you know, that's, that's part of uh, what the people want to hear. And yeah, that's that. That's probably plays into it. Now, is that even a cultural thing? Because it seems to me uh, like it. W- like I would not, or I should say, I would not be surprised if it were a human thing. Where because randomness can be quite frightening, right? And mm-hmm. okay, um, absolutely. Not to uh, not to bring uh, too much gravity to this to this conversation, um, but for example, given uh, given the recent events in Boston at the Boston Marathon. Sure, yeah. There's yeah. no, there's anyone who was um, injured during the course of that, or even present for it, right? Um, yeah. It, it was a, it was a total act of randomness, or they're they're the victims yeah. of randomness essentially. But as someone who was not, uh, f- like for myself, for example, uh, someone who yeah, was sure. not, who was not affected by it directly, my thought is, uh, and, and I'm not necessarily I'm not proud of this thought, but my thought is, uh, oh well. That's you know that's not something like I didn't put myself in a position to be hurt like that, right? I mean, I'm not, it's not it's not that I'm casting blame, but I have to immediately yeah. rationalize for myself. That's like, oh, I'm not in, I'm not in that same kind of danger. Somehow mm-hmm. those people put themselves in the way of danger, and I don't necessarily have to, and I'm not necessarily subject to that. And we find this, you know, th- th- this manifests itself in a lot of different cases. So I would imagine that. Uh, so so I guess my question goes back to this: is you mentioned that it's a cultural. It's a cultural instinct, perhaps, and uh, that's perhaps that is the case. Is it possible that it's also just a human instinct, or is it difficult to separate um, to separate those sort of cultural instincts from more human ones? Well, I think that the, the there is a human instinct for uh, for fearing randomness because what if we don't know, we can't predict, and when we can't predict, we have to live with uncertainty, and uncertainty produces anxiety, and anxiety sucks, and <laughs> I mean, and and it does, um, you know, and that's that's the way that's the way it goes, um, and and that's uh, I think that that's something that's very human, and that's um, I think that uh, that that's going to be pretty universal across uh, across cultures. How then you you kind of talk about um, specific events and and where you know you you kind of how you how you talk about randomness, how you talk about chance, um, is going to vary a little bit from culture to culture. I think the underlying fear is something that's, uh, that's pretty universal, but I, I would, uh, I, I'd say that it's, it is kind of be kind of cultural how, uh, how people handle that, uh, um, when it comes to, you know, this specific event. 
Um, yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, I, and I, I'm, I'm worried that I'm uh, probably talking out of turn, but it, it seems to me possible that there would be some correlation between um, socioeconomic category and fear of chance. If, for example, if you if you have more wealth, uh, mm -hmm. it seems to me as though you'd be more afraid of randomness. And if I can make a comparison, I know that in basketball, for example, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you find yourself in an elimination sort of tournament, mm -hmm. the team the team that is less talented has a great deal of incentive, both A, to slow down the game, and B, to rely on three-point shots. Because mm -hmm. those are the two things. If you slow down the game, then um, you – like this is, a, this is exactly a, a point about um, samples becoming reliable. You know, if mm -hmm. you take if you take one two teams and one of them is the best team in the NBA and another one mm -hmm. of them is, uh, you know, like um, like a high school team, Mm -hmm. And you say this game will be decided on one one three point shot, then it's totally mm -hmm. possible. Then that that definitely favors the high school team because because mm -hmm. you, you might get lucky because you might get lucky, right? But yeah. but if you say we're gonna we're gonna base it off of uh, you know fifty turnaround jumpers from your best player, mm -hmm. um, which is you know that could be like what a, what an actual game is, or or, mm -hmm. or or we're gonna base it on a forty minute game, then that's definitely gonna favor the NBA team. Uh, you know, and then you see this happen a lot in the NCAA tournament. Teams that are able to slow action down to create a lower sample of shots or possessions, and in relying the three-pointer, which is more subject to, to volatility, th that's a good strategy for a weaker team beating a stronger one. Th th now, to go back to the point about real life, right, where if you are from a more privileged socioeconomic category, <laughs> it seems as though you might fear randomness more. Because you've already established a certain level of comfort and security where randomness could only really make that worse because it's essentially drawing you back to the mean. And I, I don't necessarily know the numbers, but I would guess the mean uh, of all humanity in terms of quality of life is lower than the average Americans. That could be uh – -huh. uh, I, I, I could be talking at a, at a turn there. But it seems as though that's the sort of scary thing about an event like this, right, is it's bringing you uh – -huh. is, is, is randomness – is challenging you and is saying, "Oh, you thought you were secured? No, you're not." Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Now that's a lot. That's a lot of words, and maybe it's too speculative. <laughs> no, 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 but, but please, please correct me if, if, if that's too speculative as well. Well, I mean, the thing about that is that if you know, if it's if it's athletic talent or if it's um, uh, you know, if it's just kind of random life, the one thing that you do have is if that you're you know the, the more talented team or the the more talented player is that um, you do have, um, you know, you talk about slowing the game down. Well, you can't slow it down forever, and you know, there's um, there is a certain amount of um, there there is a certain amount of well, you know, talent is going to win out in the end. So even even in the face of randomness, you still know that the odds are more on your side, and that um, that you have a little bit more to fall back on as far as you know, if you have a little bit of uh, random luck that goes the other way, um, it's not the end of the world because, well, you know, there's in, if it's a basketball game or it's a baseball game, um, there's going to be another inning or another possession or another, you know, whatever whatever we're talking about. Um, so you know, there there is that aspect of it, and so you know, it's hard to then say, you know, do do you um, 
you know, who worries more about randomness, who does what, um, there is the, the aspect of, well, you know, it's just easier, um, if you want to talk about economic status, um, it is easier for somebody who is more wealthy to weather a string of bad luck. Um, whereas if you're living, uh, you're living on a prayer, um, you know, you only might make it halfway there. So. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Did you did you, <laughs> did you just say Bon Jovi? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and all the comments are going to be about that. So you know. Yeah. Uh, well, no, that's only for the. It's, it will only be the listeners who have made it this far, and I think that they, they will be very understanding. Let's. Um, if I could ask you, because uh, you, you've definitely already. Uh, fulfilled uh, the 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 bulk of your obligation to Fangraphs Audio, um, which is great. Yeah. I work for Fangraphs. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's surprising you had an obligation to begin with. It's really shocking. <laughs> let's uh, let's do a couple of uh, maybe quick, more oriented, uh, quicker yeah, yeah. questions. Uh, uh, first of all, you wrote for a number of years under this uh, the pseudonym Pizza Cutter. Yes. Uh, why and 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 why did you do that? And why, how did you have that name? I, okay, so um, Pizza Cutter is the name of a song um, that was uh, by a Boston band, Letters to Cleo. Oh, sure. And, yeah, I know Letters to Cleo. Oh, my God. Um, personally, wow. or? What's that? Uh, no, um, no I, I'm not, like, friends with them, but I, I think I had one of their uh, albums one time, yeah. Okay. So um, it, was, it was a song that, that I really liked when I was in high school and then in college, and I had a college radio show back in the day. And I um, I created this character, and I'm like, well, I need a I need a uh, you know name for the show, and and so I would play I would play pizza cutter to open the show, and I would say, um, you know, this is the pizza cutter show. I'm the pizza cutter. Um, we just started off with the pizza cutter song, and that was so it kind of became my my DJ name. So you know, fast forward a couple of years, I'm in um, I'm in grad school, and I'm starting to write publicly, and actually it started off I was I wrote just a a personal blog, um, actually more more often than not about Gilmore Girls. Um, as one and, does, yeah, as one does. Well, you know, I, I love the show, and um, and so, but uh, one of the things I said was, don't, um, you know, it was one of those things that they said, you know, don't use your real name because as a therapist, you're going to have more than your fair share of stalkers. And so I said, okay, so I needed a fake name, so I'm like, well, you know, I was in Pizza Cutter, so I'll just be Pizza Cutter. And so that segued into I started writing about baseball, and then um, I got picked up at, uh, at Statistically Speaking, and, and I started writing uh, under the name Pizza Cutter. And so that it just kind of uh, it just kind of went that way. And I actually had uh, I was where was I? I was um, I was at a, a, a Saber conference. Uh, the big Saber meeting came to Atlanta a couple of years ago, and um, I was in a uh, I was in a car with, uh, I think, uh, Neil Payne and Sean Foreman and uh, some of the baseball reference people, and they're like, wait a minute, are you Pizza Cutter? I'm like, uh, yes, yes, I am. So, uh, yeah, that's how that name came about. It was um, it was just kind of a silly thing, and um, and that's why I, I took it. It was just kind of to make sure that people weren't Googling me and then um, wanting to talk about baseball in the therapy room. Right. Now, uh, so that was uh, so that was. Uh, I was going to ask you three uh, final questions. That was question number one. Uh, question number two, um, you sort of gestured towards it. You, you talked about how you got picked up by Statistically Speaking, but could you give a rough sort of outline of your baseball background? Uh, I guess it, it could be in terms of playing, um, and probably more more likely uh, your your sort of fan your fan arc. <laughs> you make assumptions about me. They're correct assumptions, but you make assumptions. <laughs> 
Let's see, I topped out in seventh grade, summer rec league softball. Um, never quite, uh, I think if you, I warm up, I might be able to hit 40 on a, on a speed pitch machine. Okay. Uh, I mean, better, you know, than, so, better than some people. You know, that's, you know, and that's if I warm up. Um, but, uh, no, I, I grew up in Cleveland and I grew up, um, at, uh, I, I kind of became a fan of baseball in the late 80s, early 90s in Cleveland, which is just a horrible time because the Indians would lose uh, about 100 games every other year or so. Um, so I, I went through some uh, some tough times there. and But then I, I also had the, the fun of kind of that mid-90s, uh, early 2000s run when the Indians were really, really good. Um, and uh, so that's I, I had that. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I, I tell people I, I moved to Chicago for grad school and I developed an unrequited crush on the on the Cubs, and so I kind of had that in my back pocket. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started writing and um, eventually uh, uh, worked as a consultant for the Indians for a couple of years, which was uh, which was really cool. I got to actually be, uh, you know, a consultant to a team that. Um, I had lived and died with for the large majority of my uh, certainly my childhood and then my adult life. So, um, you know, I was uh, that's kind of the fan arc of of how I got here. So you're saying so you said late '80s, early '90s. Are we talking? Uh, are yeah. we talking Brooke Jacoby? Are we talking Corey Snyder? Hey, you better not uh, be be uh, um, dissing on Brooke Jacoby. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no, just because I say their name doesn't. This is not to say I'm dissing them. <laughs> no, I'm because I remember. Yes, oh yes. Growing those up were... as a Red Sox fan, late '80s, early '90s. Um, I remember those names from uh, from the Indians. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Those were stars. those 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 are names that are, are etched deeply into my heart. So. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I I had those. Was Mark Lewis around at some point? Was he a, was he a yeah yeah oh oh he was he was the next great thing he was going to save uh, he was going to save Cleveland baseball and until he didn't until he didn't um, right. until yeah until we found out he was kind of a quiet a player and and he you know bumped around and he was going you know he did the utility infielder for a thing a while and oh he's going to be good he's going to be good he's going to be good and then he just wasn't and uh, um, again because you're, you're so very close now this is the third question. Uh, mm. And um, it, it relates to what to, to some of what you just said, uh, but I want to get it doesn't just say I, I want to get away from the sporting angle somewhat. But mm-hmm. if you could let me know about Cleveland a little bit, I, I'm curious as to what mm-hmm. your sort of uh, you know if you have an elevator speech or elevator pitch about Cleveland. It doesn't necessarily need to be pro Cleveland, but just uh, you know there are, there's a lot of information out there about Cleveland. Perhaps it is mm-hmm. misinformation. I understand that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gone through uh, good and bad times, but I'm curious what mm-hmm. what your feelings are about that fair city. Cleveland's the most beautiful place in the world. <laughs> no question. You are either lying or drunk is what you no. are. Right now. No, you think it's the most beautiful I, place. You really do. Um, oh, well, it's home. I mean, it's, right. you know, I'm, I'm, go- I'm going up there for my brother's wedding in a couple of weeks, and so, you know, it's um, it, it, it has that going for it. It is... It, it, it is one of those cities that, um, you know, when I lived in when I lived in Chicago, and I lived on the north side of Chicago, and and so it's kind of a different experience from living on the south side. But everybody you know, on the north side of Chicago is from somewhere other than Chicago, and 
it, and it, it's it's a little odd because it's just kind of a mishmash of of you know people who are from other places. Cleveland, you're probably you know it it is one of those places that if you're in Cleveland, you're probably from Cleveland, and so it's a um, you know I. I will tell you, having been job searching in Cleveland, it's, it has its rough patches, and there are um, things I wish were different about it. But, um, but you know, it is it is the sort of thing that um, I, I get why people make the jokes. But um, you know, it's 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 a really nice place to have been from, and I'm I'm proud of it. Now, I'll, I'll say it again: Cleveland is the most beautiful place in the world, <laughs> and uh, that's my, that's my final answer. Yeah, no, but I'm reminded though, and I I, I invoked this uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Uh, Robert mm-hmm. Frost has a, has a long poem called New Hampshire, uh, in which yes, he yes. talks at length about New Hampshire, uh, and then the concluding lines are something to the effect of, uh, "And that's why I've taken up residence in Vermont." Right. Yeah. Um, you are you you're more than willing to sing the praises of Cleveland, but you live you live where currently? I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia, which is. Decidedly not Cleveland, except for the fact that they um, both have semi-racist uh, team names. Both of those. Both yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'm curious. Uh, why would someone from Cleveland who likes Cleveland? Why would they live in Atlanta? Well, you know, Carson. <laughs> you know, you go to college, you meet a girl. Yeah. You say, "Hey, where are you from?" And she says, Atlanta. Oh. And you think she's kind of neat, and you know, a couple <laughs> years later, you end up married to her. And then you have three, so, you have three kids together? And yeah. Or two and a half? Yeah, you get two, two kids. And yeah. Two and a half, yep. Yeah. And then, uh, and actually what it was is that um, I mentioned my internship. I was in Cleveland, and I said, uh, I'm going to apply uh, for jobs in two cities, one in Cleveland, one in Atlanta, and whoever claims me first gets me. Yeah. And uh, so I was in uh, – uh, you know, it was just one of those things Atlanta called first, so we moved down here and uh, been here for, oh gosh, two and a half, three years at this point, and just never quite thought I'd end up here, but, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's not quite as beautiful as Cleveland, but uh, it's, uh, it's a nice place to be. Yep, and uh, to anyone listening who's from Atlanta, apologies to you for having a city that's not quite as beautiful as Cleveland. Just, oh, you're going to twist it that way. <laughs> just nearly, but not quite as beautiful as Cleveland. <laughs> and I say, and I say that with love in my voice, Atlanta, I know you do. because because I'm sure now people are going to be like, oh, he's in Atlanta, really? You know. <laughs> well, I can, uh, yeah, we can uh, water balloon his house at this point. Um, well, listen, <laughs> listen. Uh, uh, two two things, Russell. Uh, one, I want to thank you very much. Uh, for your for your hour, it appears though it's been almost an hour. And uh, two, I want to invite you. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to stop the recording in a moment, but I would like mm-hmm. to uh, invite you to stay over uh, to stay on for some uh, adult conversation. Uh, but but so back to my first point though. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for being had. Yeah, that is uh, uh, that is Russell Card. I guess currently you you currently are to be found at Baseball Prospectus. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Currently a Baseball Prospectus. Uh, but a man, uh, but a man for everyone. I think we can all agree uh, is is Russell Carlton, uh, aka Pizza Cutter. Uh, I am Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.